You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Amen. My name is Paul Ramsey. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, um, I am a church planting resident here at Sojourn Houston. I'm a covenant member at Sojourn Heights, uh, and it is a joy to be with you in Montrose this morning, to, to be meeting the Lord with you as we open his word together. And so thank you for having me. Uh, this, as we begin, I should say, um, you just heard Genesis 17 read. Um, this morning, we're gonna be, I'm going to be a little bit ambitious. We're looking at Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17, uh, because those are the three iterations, the three times that God speaks this covenant uh, with Abraham. And we're going to kind of jump around a little bit. If you've got a Bible, um, I'd encourage you to follow along. Uh, but I'll hopefully explain in a way that's, that's understandable. We'll start in Genesis 12, move to 15, and then finish in 17 with the text you just heard read. We are going through a series right now um, at Sojourn called Christ and the Covenants. Uh, And what we're doing is we're tracing the relationship between God and man as uh, as it's told in the Bible and the word that God often uses to describe this relationship he has with us is, um, is the word covenant, which points to the fact that the relationship between God and us is deep and meaningful and significant. God is our creator, we are his creatures, and as such, uh, he is intimately connected with us. Casual friendships are not bound by covenant, marriages are. Likewise, the covenant that God makes with us testifies to the fact that this is a deep and abiding relationship. Every covenant has promises and conditions, and I think that, that each of us um, was made for this. Right, I believe that we need a covenant. We need a commitment that we can hold on to uh, because this is written into our very DNA. It's because this is how God created us. He created us for this intimate relationship, uh, for this covenant relationship with him. Um, and as we understand the covenants of God as he, as he gives them through the Bible, this is week three in the series. Two weeks ago, we talked about the covenant with Adam. Last week, covenant with Noah. Abraham today. Next week, we'll talk about Moses and then David and then Jesus and to kind of help you understand if you, you might have heard this illustration before, uh, we believe that all of these covenants are part of one overarching uh, covenant of grace that God weaves throughout human history. If you, uh, you can picture it kind of like standing in the water um, in the ocean with the tide slowly rising, waves hit you. The first wave is Adam, the second wave is Noah, then Abraham, then Moses, then David, and then the waters recede and there's a moment of calm and then this tidal wave comes crashing in, it's the new covenant uh, in Christ. All part of the same ocean, all part of the same plan of redemption, but they're God's successive ways of revealing his plan to us. This week is about promise. This week is about the commitment that God makes to, God, uh, to his people to bring about this plan of redemption. Uh, the covenant with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant is called the covenant of promise. And the question we come to right now, and the question we really come to every week before we uh, get into the text is, why redemption? All right, why is there this story of redemption? You're probably, uh, if you're here, you're probably familiar with the basics of the story, but at the, you know, at the beginning, God created man and woman. He created Adam and Eve good. They were the crown of his creation. They were made in his image, and he gave them the whole world to, po- to, to populate. He said, be fruitful and multiply, spread, uh, they're, they were image bearers for him. He said, spread my image, spread my glory over the, over the whole earth. Just don't eat from that one tree that's in the midst of the garden. 
because on the day that you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. You have everything else. You have me. Just avoid that tree. And we know that Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree, and God is forced as a result to cast them out of his presence. The problem wasn't that they ate the wrong kind of fruit. The problem was that this was a rebellion against God. And we believe as Christians that we, we really can't overstate the damaging effects of that one sin. All right, the ground is cursed because of this. Humanity is cursed because of this. There's not one part of creation that's unaffected by this, the entrance of sin into the world because God had entrusted his creation to mankind. And so when we failed in the Garden of Eden, he cast us out and creation broke with the entrance of sin. And this is why we're all, in a sense, living for ourselves rather than for God or for others. This is why when I tell my wife that I'll be home at 5 and I don't get home until 6.30, I'm frustrated that she doesn't understand that I just had stuff to do. This is why, despite the fact that we have a beautiful daughter, she's, and she's, she's here right now, that why in the midst of that beauty, there's the reminder that, that the, the birthing process was a painful and scarring experience for my wife. This original sin is why we try to hide our faults, sometimes damaging ourselves and others in the process. It's why divorce rates are what they are, why suicide rates are what they are. It's why there's people who think that they're actually doing the right thing when they strap a bomb to themselves and walk into a public place and blow themselves up, killing innocent people for a cause. Right? We, we believe that the, that the effects of the fall, the effects of sin are far-reaching and that ever since that event in the Garden of Eden, every human being that's ever lived was born into this curse of sin and death. Uh, I want to point you to Psalm 14, and, and I want to see, see this for ourselves. Before, right, right now, I want you to see this from God's word. Let's listen to how David wrote about mankind in Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3. David says this. He says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand any who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So this is in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul quotes this psalm in Romans 3, reinforcing that it's still true, that no one is righteous, no one does good, not even one. And then he gives this, um, he gives this summary statement in, in verse 23 of, of Romans 3. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, in committing that first sin in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve brought this curse upon all mankind, upon them and their descendants, and as a result, every man, woman, and child alive today, every man, woman, and child that's ever lived falls short of the glory of God. What's incredible, though, is that God didn't end the story there. Right? He could have just pressed stop and wiped everything away, but he didn't end the story. In fact, uh, he, he has a plan for redeeming creation. In the context of the curse that he gives to Adam, we talked about this two weeks ago, he promises the coming of a redeemer right, who would crush the head of the serpent. This kicks off this plan of redemption, and, and this week, today, we're looking at the story of Abraham, the covenant that God makes with him in order to show his commitment to this plan of redemption that he began in the context of the curse of the fall and that he is continuing for all uh, eternity. And I believe, like I said, that we are made for commitment. Right? We're made to be in this covenantal, beautiful relationship with God and that the only true answer for, this fulf uh, for fulfillment, the only way that this need will be truly satisfied is if we find ourselves in the context of this story of redemption, in the context of God's covenant promise to us. 
And it's my hope that as we look into the story of Abraham, Abraham, Abram, who becomes Abraham, um, that, that maybe even one thing that you hear this morning would point you to the beauty of this story and how it is fulfilled in Christ. We'll look at three main things. First, we're going to look at how God uh, establishes his covenant with Abraham. Second, we're going to look at how while this covenant brought hope, the, the root problem still remained. And then point three, we're going to look at uh, how what was partially revealed to Abraham was fully realized in Christ. And, and we'll look briefly at that, what that means for us. So with that, turn with me back to Genesis 12. Here we come to Abraham. Adam and Eve got cast out of the garden with this promise that God would raise up a redeemer. And here, nine chapters later, we come to this man named Abram and the covenant God makes with him. Starting in verse one, it says this, it says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Go from your country into the land that I will show you. So what do we see? Uh, we see first that we begin with Abram, not yet Abraham. We'll come to that in a few minutes. Uh, and if you remember, uh, covenant, the concept of covenant includes promises and conditions, includes blessings and responsibilities. And God starts here in verse 1 with the condition, right, with Abraham's responsibility. Go from your country to the land that I will show you. And the first observation that I would make is that, that God is the initiator of this covenant. Right, Abraham doesn't ask for it. Um, he doesn't earn it. He's not waiting for it. It is a gracious covenant that God initiates. And while God initiates this act of grace, this doesn't mean that Abram had no responsibility. He was called to leave everything he knew and go to a land that the Lord would show him. And this was a big ask. When God says to Abraham, leave your country, your family, your father's authority, um, in these days, your identity is very much wrapped up in who your father, uh, in who your father was, your financial security uh, was found in your inheritance, which was primarily understood in land, um, and it was your father's land and animals that provided for your daily needs. And so this would be like God saying to us, listen, your retirement accounts, give those to your brothers and sisters. All of your savings, those two. Just keep enough for a one-way ticket to, I'll tell you later, just get in the car and start driving to the airport, and I'll tell you later. Right, so God tells us to leave everything. Don't worry about it. Um, just start driving down the road, and I'll show you from there. God calls Abram to leave his country, go into the land that God will show him. Why should Abram leave? Let's look at verse 2. God goes on to make promises to Abram. Verses 2 and 3, he says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We see three main things. I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, and I will make your name great. First, let's look here at what it means that God will make him a great nation. For one, we see that this covenant was not with Abram alone, right? It's not with Abram alone, it's with Abram and his offspring, his family. And we see this, that, that when God promises salvation, it's always to a nation. It's always to people, plural, um, it was true then, and, it, and it's still true today. This is why there's no such thing in the Bible as a Christian life lived in isolation. Right? It was true then, it's true now. God's covenant is always with people. Also, at the time God said this, Abram's name was something of a mockery. Abram is a name uh, that means proud father, but he had no children because his wife Sarai was barren. When God promises to make him a great nation, 
then, he essentially says, your name, which has been a joke, will actually be redeemed because not only will I give you a son, but I will multiply you into a great nation. And so God promises to make Abram into a great nation. Second, we see that God promises to bless Abram. Not only will God make him a great nation, but he will also bless him to make him a blessing. Right? In the same way that God's covenant is not just for Abram, but for his offspring also, this blessing is so that through them, God will bless all the families of the earth. God's blessing is meant to be stewarded for others. You might, uh, your mind might go to something that Jesus said at the end of his ministry. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. Right? That's a statement that became known as the Great Commission, but really, we see that the Great Commission begins here. Jesus was just reiterating this promise that God had made to Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Some people say that before Jesus, God was just a one-nation God. He just cared for a particular group of people. Uh, but this shows that that's not true. God's plan from all time, um, even, we could even trace it back to the Garden of Eden where God says, be fruitful and multiply, cover the earth. Right? From the very beginning, God has cared deeply about all peoples, all nations, and his plan has always been to redeem the nations, to bless the nations. And we see that God promises that this blessing will come through Abram, through Abram's family, who will be a blessing to the nations. And then third, we see God promises to make Abram's name great. Right? This is, I think, best understood in contrast with the story that you may be familiar with called the, story, uh, called the Tower of Babel. This happens in Genesis 11, just a chapter before. Uh, the people of the world said to one another, come, let us make a name for ourselves. And so they, so they start building this tower towards heaven. And as a result, God, God punishes them by confusing their language, by scattering them over the face of the earth. This is uh, the Bible giving an account for why there are people all over the earth with different languages. Right? Here, though, God promises to make Abram's name great. So we see in the Tower of Babel that God rebukes man when he seeks to increase his own name. But here, God graciously gives us a great name. It's his covenant children. So the desire to have a great name is not a bad one. Right? It's not a bad thing to want to have a great name. It's just that it can only truly be fulfilled when God is the one who gives that name to us. So we've seen... Uh, that God promises to make of Abram a great nation. He promises to bless him, to make his name great. All of this so that he can be a blessing to all the families of the earth. God doesn't tell Abram how he's going to do things. Uh, he just asks for obedience and trust. He says, go from your country, um, and I will show you where you are to go. As we read on in the story of Abram, uh, which, which continues really from Genesis 12 all the way through Genesis 25, we return to this covenant two more times, like I said before, Genesis 15, in Genesis 17, uh, with God reassuring Abram of these promises that he had made, despite Abram's questionable actions. And we're going to look at these briefly, not as in-depth as we just did uh, just, just then, uh, but let's look at these briefly. Leading up to chapter 15, um, we see at the end of chat, uh, Genesis 12, after what we just read, uh, we see the story of Abram and Sarah, uh, Sarai, his wife, going into Egypt because of the famine uh, that, that covers the land. And when they go into Egypt, uh, they lie to the Egyptian pharaoh to tell him that they're brother and sister instead of husband and wife uh, because Sarai was beautiful and they thought maybe uh, the pharaoh would want to marry Sarai, take Sarai into his own household and so he would kill Abram. So instead they say they're brother and sister. Um, and so rather than trusting in the promises of God 
we see that Abram and Sarai take matters into their own hands. Uh, they choose to be dishonest, giving Sarai in a sinful marriage to the Pharaoh. And we see that when this brings affliction to the Pharaoh, he casts them out um, and they continue on their way. And when we come to Genesis 15, right, despite what Abram has done, or I would argue that because of what Abram has done, God comes to him in a vision to reassure him. Genesis 15, verse 1 says, Do not fear, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. God says to Abram, Don't worry. Blessing is coming. So Abram questions God in verses 2 and 3. He says, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Abram looks at God, looks at God and says, I'm childless, and this slave boy from my household is going to inherit everything. See, failure to produce an heir was a, was a great calamity in the ancient world. Um, like I said, your identity is in who your father is, and it broke up the line of the generational inheritances, broke up the line of the name of a family. And so Abram, it's unsurprising that Abram would be asking God this question. Right? He essentially looks at, God, looks at God saying, you made this promise to me of offspring, so, so what, what are you going to do? And we see God's response is both gentle and generous. Verse 4, God tells him that he will indeed have his very own son, and he goes on to show him. God walks him outside, tells him to look at the stars, look at the sky, and says, see the stars? Your offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the heavens. After this, it says in verse 6 that Abram believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness, which is an incredible verse. This is actually a key verse uh, in understanding the writings of the Apostle Paul. Um, and what this means is that Abram wasn't perfect by any means, but he believed in the Lord's promise. Right? Because of his grace, God doesn't require perfection, only belief and trust that he will bring about the fulfillment of his covenant promises. So it says, Abram believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abram didn't know how God was going to do it. In fact, he tried to interfere a couple of times. But he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Then God turns his attention to remind Abram of the land that he had promised. Abram says, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And so God enters into this covenant-making ceremony uh, in Genesis 15. And I'll pause here for just a minute. He tells Abram to bring animals, to cut them into, in a ceremony that was customary at the time. And these slaughtered animals signaled the life and death consequences of a covenant that was being made. Um, and at the end of the ceremony, after promises were made, usually what would happen is the two parties that are entering the covenant would walk through the pieces of the animals which had been cut in half, essentially saying to themselves, if I saying to one another, if I break this covenant, let what happened to these animals be done to me. It's a very serious uh, life and death promise that's involved in a covenant. In this particular instance, with God instituting this ceremony with Abram uh, through a vision, it signifies not just death, but also being cut off from the people of God because the promises God made to Abraham were, I will make you a people. But the amazing thing is that during the part where both parties usually walk through the pieces of the, animal, uh, of the animals, God leaves Abram to the side to watch as a smoking pot uh, and a flaming torch pass between the pieces. This is an example of what's called a theophany, um, how God uh, shows himself to his people. He manifests his presence in the sight of his people. Other examples in the Bible of this would be uh, a pillar of smoke and fire leading the Israelites to the desert, God appearing to Moses in a burning bush. God, in essence, here 
uh, in this covenant with Abraham says, this promise I give to you of land, right? This, I've promised you this land, and really what that means is I've promised that I will be present with you. You will be with me, and I will be with you. This promise is one that you can take to the bank, right? This is a promise that I have made with you. Um, it's, it's a promise that's sealed with the force of a covenant, and I will not leave it to you to bring this about. I will do this. So God himself passes through the pieces, even though Abram was the servant in this transaction, indicating that God was completely dedicated to bringing about his promises. So that's chapter 15, the covenant reassurance uh, pointing back to, to what God had told Abraham in, in Genesis 12. And now let's look ahead. Just after this, uh, once again, Abram and Sarai take matters into their own hands. Uh, we read in chapter 16 the story of Sarah, uh, Sarai and Hagar, uh, her, her servant girl. Uh, because Sarai hadn't provided Abram an heir, uh, she gives her husband this servant girl as kind of a concubine, a, a, just a way to, to provide Abram an heir. Um, sure enough, Hagar conceives and bears Abram a son, names him Ishmael. Um, and again, similar to what we saw back in chapter 12, we see this distrust that God would bring about his covenant promises. Right? And so Abram and Sarai take matters into their own hands, and it ends in really another adulterous relationship. Even so, though, when we come to Genesis 17, we see that rather than nixing his plans with Abram, right, rather than nixing these plans, God again reassures him, and this time he includes a covenant sign. The key features of this covenant that are different from what we've heard already uh, in chapter 17 are that Abraham, Abram is renamed Abraham, which he takes uh, th this name, which means father of a multitude. So he goes from being called proud father to, to be called father of a multitude, and Abram is given a sign, a covenant sign in his flesh. Um, Abraham is also commanded in verse 1 to walk before God and be blameless. Right, these are this, this is Abram's responsibility, walk before God and be blameless. Let me explain this. God is not expecting perfection from Abraham. He's expecting wholehearted devotion. This, this same word is used in the story of Noah, which we talked about last week. Um, the word translated blameless means complete or whole. God is expecting wholehearted devotion, not perfection. But even so, God is stressing Abraham's responsibility. Right? This is a gracious covenant and there are covenant obligations. This too is a key verse for understanding the writings of Paul. And through them, really, the nature of God's relationship with us. Some people think that embracing grace means that there are no obligations. Right? We'll say things like, you don't have to obey God, but you'll want to. And that simply isn't true. Right? Even as grace, in, grace initiates, we are obliged to obey. Right? We are not to continue in sin in response to the grace that God shows us. Grace and obligation are not mutually exclusive opposites. Grace and obligation are not mutually exclusive opposites. Get that? They are opposite, but they're not mutually exclusive. In fact, they go hand in hand. Right? They're key to understanding our relationship with God. God pours out his grace on us, his free grace that we don't deserve, because we all deserve death. And his, he invites us to respond with a life of joyful obedience. Obedience is a good thing. It's what we were created to do. So God reassures Abraham. He gives him a new name to reflect the fact that he will make good on the promise to make him fruitful, to make him the father of many nations. And he promises that this covenant will be everlasting, that it will endure 
until eternity. And then uh, read with me in verse 11. He gives the covenant sign of circumcision. Genesis 17, 11 says this. says, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So God gives this sign of the covenant between him and Abraham and his offspring. And this is, this is a sacrament, which, which means that it was designed by God as a sign and seal of covenant realities. Right? It's a sign pointing to the grace of God, the covenant of God, the promise of God. And it's a seal, which means if you picture an envelope that's, in, that's sent through the mail, it's not an open envelope in, in the middle of a journey you know, the promises might fall out. This envelope is sealed and it has been delivered. Right? So, this, so circumcision is given as a sacrament, as a sign and seal of the covenant promises of God. And we must, must remember that sacraments are always in the context of a pre-existing relationship with God. This is true for us of baptism and communion uh, in the new covenant. These are sacraments, sacraments, which means that they are signs and seals of covenant promises. And signs don't effect relationship. Signs reflect relationship. God gives them to us because of the weakness of our faith, uh, because the weakness of our faith requires physical reassurance. We saw this in chapter 12 with the Egyptian Pharaoh and in chapter 16 with Hagar. Abraham tries to bring God's promises to fruition on his own. These are failures of faith. And so God here in Genesis 17 institutes an abiding mark for Abraham and his descendants, circumcision. Right? Circumcision was meant to remind Abraham of the promises God made to him and his offspring. And it was truly a reminder. It was painful in administration, and it was frequent in remembrance. Right? Every time Abraham and his offspring relieved themselves, they were reminded of the promises of God to them. And right after God institutes this sign of circumcision, he then reiterates his promises. And in so doing, he inextricably links this covenant sign with the covenant promises. Again, it points to the relationship that was pre-existing. Signs don't effect relationship. They reflect relationship. And so we see that the sign doesn't establish the relationship between God and his people. But God makes it clear that to reject the sign is to reject the relationship. In verse 14, we see circumcision is the cutting off of the foreskin. It says in verse 14 that any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people, for he has broken my covenant. So God gives Abraham circumcision as this sign, as a sacrament that points him and his offspring back to God's gracious covenant promises to them. And so let's look at what we've seen. The relationship God had with Adam and Eve was broken. They were cast out of the Garden of Eden, but God promises a redeemer. Last week, we talked about Noah, how God makes his covenant with Noah, tells Noah again to be fruitful and multiply and cover the earth. And then now we see this, this covenant fall upon Abraham. God called Abram out of his country, promised him a nation, blessing, a great name, and despite Abram's failure to trust, we see that God reassures him repeatedly, finally giving him the sign of circumcision as a physical reminder of the covenant that God made with his people. And ultimately, underlying all that we've talked about is the relationship, right? The theme underlying this, this theme of the, the relationship God has with, with Abraham, underlying all of this is the theme of the relationship God has with his people. You see, more than Adam and Eve simply failing to follow the rule of God, 
in the Garden of Eden. What was truly broken was the relationship that they had with God. And when we come to Abraham, we see that God's focus is very much on writing this relationship with his people. He says, I will establish my covenant. I will bring you into the land that I will give you. I will make you fruitful. I will make you the father of many nations. Right? God is promising to be intimately involved in what's going on with his people. And in chapter 17, verse 7, I think he tells us why. Genesis 17, 7, he tells Abraham this. He says, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. God is promising to be their God, which means he's promising a restored relationship to him. And this is huge. And the reason I say this is because from here on, we see that God actually goes about fulfilling his promises to Abraham. He gives Abraham a son named Isaac in Genesis 21. Isaac's son Jacob has 12 sons of his own, which eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel, which becomes a great nation. Right? And even when we flip forward to Joshua 21, we see that God gives his people the land that he had promised. Right? So it looks, right, if we didn't see that God's ultimate goal was the promise of a restored relationship with his people, then it would look like, by the time we get to Joshua 21, that all these promises that God had made to Abraham were fulfilled. Right? And the unfortunate thing is that when those things start to go wrong, we might start to think that God's promises failed. Right? Because we see that they do go wrong. While many of these promises were fulfilled, what we see happen time and time again in the story of the Bible is that God's people repeatedly forget his promises. They turn away from faith and trust in him, and so they don't experience this truly restored relationship that God had been promising. Had God's promises failed? See, this great nation that God had made out of Abraham's descendants received the promised land, but they couldn't keep it. They lost it. There's story after story of the failure of God's people to obey and trust. And here's the reason. See, that which broke their relationship with God in the first place wasn't the fact that they were in the wrong land. It right? wasn't, wasn't the fact uh, uh, that they didn't have offspring. Right? The, 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 the reason was that sin had not been dealt with. Right? The reason for their separation from God, for the brokenness of this relationship, was sin. They had been given the sign of circumcision, but circumcision was merely external. It didn't change the real problem, which was their sin. God had given to Abraham and his offspring promises, and Abraham had believed in such a way that it was counted to him as righteousness, but we see that Hebrews 11 explains that Abraham still died not having received the things promised. So what was he waiting for? the underlying promise of restored relationship had not been realized yet because sin had not been dealt with. In their hearts, right, in their hearts, God's people still wanted to live life their own way rather than God's way. And no amount of words or promises could change their hearts. We all know this, right? Look at your New Year's resolutions, your diets, your routines of waking up early, your Bible reading plans. External stimuli don't change our internal desires. We could look at a hundred other things, but because of their sinful hearts, we see that God's people continued to disbelieve and disobey, and it is this sin that interfered with the central purpose of this whole covenant, the whole purpose of God's covenant with Abraham, which was a restored relationship. And so too is the case with us even today. Right? Ephesians 2 says that each of us is dead in our trespasses and sins following the course of this world. Each of us was born into the curse of Adam and Eve 
We need a plan of redemption that will not just pay the price for us externally, but a plan of redemption that will affect us from the inside out, one that will truly change our hearts. And the only way for redemption like this to happen in a way that will truly change our hearts is if God himself comes in to change our hearts. And in order for God to come in, though, we must be clean because God can't stand to be in the presence of sin. Right? So God knew what was necessary. He knew what, would ha- what, was, what needed to happen in order to make this redemption possible. And the New Testament tells the story of how God makes this happen. And listen, the New Testament doesn't improve upon God's promise to Abraham. It doesn't improve upon God's promise to Abraham. What it does is it discloses the implications of God's commitment to Abraham, which is this. God's commitment is seen ultimately in the gift and sacrifice of his own son. See, the relationship was broken by sin, and sin incurred a penalty. The only way for this penalty was to be paid was through sacrifice. So God had to both pay the penalty for sin and cleanse us from the dirtiness of it, and that is what he did for us in Christ. God came down himself to live the perfect life that none of us could live so that he could die the death that paid the penalty for our sins once and for all, and so that his blood poured out could wash over us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness so that we might become dwelling places of God himself, that the Holy Spirit could indeed enter in and change our hearts. Just as the covenant ceremony in Genesis 15 pointed to the fact that the blood, that blood was the price that had to be paid with the breaking of a covenant, so too did the cutting off involved in circumcision point to the fact that blood was required in order to receive God's covenant blessings. The penalty of sin was death. We see that in the curse of the fall when Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. Therefore, the only way that life, once marred by sin, can remain is through the death of a substitute. Blood was required to pay the penalty for our sin, but our blood would never have been good enough to pay this required price for redemption. And that's exactly what Christ did for us. God's promise to Abraham had incredible implications with respect to God's own commitment. God, God's commitment was that he would one day send his son to do the work that none of us could do. Let me read Hebrews 9, verses 11 and 12. You don't need to turn there. Let me just read this to you. It says this, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Hebrews 9 is all about this substitutionary sacrifice. It explains that Jesus knew that the blood of goats and lambs, animal sacrifice, blood sacrifice, was not a new thing in the Old Testament. It, was, it, was, it occurred in the days of Abraham, but Jesus knew, God knew when he sent Jesus that the blood of lamb and goats would only satisfy for a time because the penalty was not incurred by animals. The penalty was incurred by man. So only through perfect, sinless man could these sins be paid for. Jesus didn't have to make a sacrifice. He was the sacrifice because he was a perfect man. The sacrifice once and for all He was able to secure eternal redemption for us. Christ died for our sins, and his death is the basis for this eternal redemption. Jesus' sacrifice brings true and permanent cleansing from sin. 
So you see, what was partially revealed to Abraham was fully realized in Christ. God had promised offspring in a name. He had promised to bless Abraham to be a blessing to the nations. And he had promised to be their God, that, that, he would, that they would be his people. And God's commitment to these promises is met completely in Christ. Galatians 3, I strongly encourage you after today, at some point this week, to open up and read through Galatians 3. I'll point to a couple of things. It shows how Christ is the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. Galatians 3.8 says that Christ was who the scriptures had in mind when they preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying that all the nations will be blessed. So Christ was who God had in mind when he told Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. Galatians 3.13 shows that Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us, reconciling us back into right relationship with God so that God could be our, his, our God and we could be his people. In Galatians 3.16, Christ is identified as the offspring of Abraham, the one whose name is above every name. Christ is the one to whom all of the promises of Abraham pointed. Like God had told Adam, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And Adam did that, but he filled the earth with wickedness. He, re, he repeated this, prom, this, 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 this command to Noah. He brought Noah through the flood and said, Noah, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And Noah did that, but he filled the earth with wickedness. When we come to Abraham, God doesn't say the same thing. God says, instead of saying to Abraham, go and be fruitful and multiply, he says, I will make you fruitful. Abraham, I will multiply you. I will make your name great. See, the New Testament doesn't improve upon God's promise to Abraham. Rather, it discloses the implications of God's commitment. Right? God the Son was dismembered on account of man's disobedience. God the Son was cut off so that mankind could be grafted in. God the Son did what needed to be done so that God the Holy Spirit could enter into us and change our hearts so that we could truly worship God the Father in spirit and in truth for what he has done for all eternity to come. That is what Christ has done. And so what does this mean? This means that we get to live lives marked by hope and trust that God's covenant promises will come to completion. We get to live our life in light of the fulfillment of these covenant promises. When Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, we get to do so knowing that God is spreading his image, his glory throughout the earth through us. This is why we are a church that plants churches because we believe that God meets in beautiful ways, shines his light into the world through collections of believers. And so we try to multiply these communities, plant churches around the city, around the country, and we're never gonna stop until Jesus comes back. Because only then, only when Jesus comes back, will his glory truly fill all the darkness. Until then, we, give, uh, we are given this life of light, this life of hope, always being prepared to make a defense, not for the gospel, as we often quote, but always being prepared to make a defense for, 1 Peter 2, the hope that is in us. God gives us hope. And he gives us hope by making good on his covenant promises to us. Let me, let me close this way. Abraham wasn't sinless, right? Abraham doubted God's plan. He even committed adultery under God's law by laying with a woman who was not his wife. But even so, his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And he became known as the father of all who believe. He didn't become the father of all who believe because he was perfect or sinless. He was neither of those things. He was made the father of of all who believe because he believed in the gracious covenant promise to him and to his, 
uh, and to his offspring. Similarly, our access to the covenant blessings of God are not accessible through our being perfect or through our being sinless, and that's good news, right? Because they are accessible to us through faith in the one who was perfect, the one who is perfect, the one who is sinless, the one who died for us, the true and better Adam, Jesus Christ. We get to believe in him, and that is our access. Listen, I know that, that some of us in this room th- live our lives hearing people talk about Jesus and thinking, yeah, that's great. I'm glad you've received that gift, but you don't know what I did yesterday. Right? You don't know what I did this morning. Right? You don't know what I did 10 years ago that I haven't told anyone yet. Listen, that thing that you're thinking about is exactly what Jesus had in mind when he went to the cross. The darkness within us right, doesn't come in shades of black. Right? The darkness doesn't come in shades. You see, what we're tempted to do is we're tempted to look around at one another and kind of grade ourselves with respect to one another, saying, well, a little bit darker than me over here, a little bit lighter than me, I should try to be like that. But listen, that's not what we're supposed to compare ourselves to. We're not kept from God's presence because of our contrast between, between one another. We're kept from God's presence because of the contrast between our sin and God's holiness. Romans 3.23, going back to that, says, for all have sinned and, you know, it, it doesn't say, what Romans 3.23 doesn't say is all have sinned and some have fallen further than others. Right? Romans 3.23 says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is nothing that you have done that disqualifies you any further than anyone else in this room or anyone else in the world. In fact, here's the offer. Let me read uh, Romans 3.23 again, but this time I'm going to continue on to verses 24 and 25. It says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. All you need to do to be justified by the grace of God through his covenant promises is believe in Jesus. Abraham's faith was in God's ability to fulfill his covenant promises. And that was counted to him as righteousness for us. The only way that we are declared righteous, the only way back into right relationship with God is to be found in Christ so that in him we, could, we can become the righteousness of God. And how do you find yourself in him? Believe. Believe. Believe in Jesus, that he died for your sins, that he rose again for your salvation, that he gave you this mission, he gave you this hope to show that he is the true fulfillment of all of God's covenant promises. Because there is coming a day when judgment will be, will be poured out on all sin and death that we see around us right now, on all wickedness. And Jesus' offer to us is, hey, come get in me because I am the ark that will preserve you through the flood of God's judgment. Find yourself in me. Find yourself in the cleft of the rock of ages because when God's judgment comes, it will not be a day of sorrow for us. It will be a day of joy and abundant, uh, abundant praise for God because of what he's done for us in Jesus. How do we have access to Christ? Believe. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the good news that you completed the work that was set before you in dying the death that each of us deserved after living the perfect life that none of us could live so that we might have direct access to you, so that you could truly enter into us and turn our hearts to you. And we thank you, Lord, and I ask 
in the powerful name of Jesus, Lord, by your grace, that you would remind us of that truth today. And if there are people in this room who have not heard that gift of, who have not received that gift of grace, who have not heard your gospel, who you have not drawn to yourself, Lord, I pray that you would do that, that maybe for the first time you'd introduce yourself to us so that we might live lives characterized by the beautiful hope that is why you created us. In Jesus' name, amen.